All right, Jonah chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, head over to Jonah chapter 4. If you don't, that's fine. The verses will be up on the screen for you to follow along. As Brad mentioned, um, Damo was supposed to preach this morning. And uh, some of you may have already heard this sermon. It was preached a while ago, but um, it's, uh, as I was preparing over it, I'm like, yeah, this is good. This is a great reminder of what heart is required to be reaching this city. And so I'm looking forward to preaching Jonah chapter 4 this morning. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, I went to uh, what is, I think, Australia's largest youth, or was Australia's largest youth festival, Big Exo Day, put on by Youth Alive Australia in New South Wales. And couple of uh, my youth group kids at the time, Ethan and Isaac Viglioni, their band, The Window, had won a competition to play on one of the stages at the big EXO day. And so I went along to watch the guys play their big first gig. It was really exciting for them. And I purchased my ticket for the big EXO day and I lined up with thousands of other teenagers and stood in this line. And I noticed along the whole length of this huge queue that was waiting up to get into this festival these people holding up signs. And as I got closer, I could see the signs and they were protesters. And I noticed this one lady holding up this sign that said this, and it's on the screen for you now. It said, Christian rock is from the pit of hell. And she had uh, all, all of these Westboro Baptist style protesters were there and they had these big groups of people in circles around them. I'm assuming they were Hillsong people because there were a lot of really big Islander boys there. And to be honest, it would have been fairly intimidating. If I was them, I would have taken my sign and gone home. But they, were, they weren't aggressive. They were talking to these people and, and trying to convince them that what was happening on this day wasn't of the devil, which is what these Christians thought. And so I, I saw this taking place. And I thought, you know what? That's going to make a really good sermon illustration one day. And so I pushed my way through this circle of big, burly Islander guys, and I just leant in with my phone and took a photo of this girl holding up her sign, Christian Rock is from the pit of hell. And I joined back in the line, and I reflected on what was happening on that day, and I thought to myself, I wonder what is happening in the hearts of these people as they stand there holding up these signs. I wonder if their hearts are broken for the teenagers that are walking through these gates who just do not know about Jesus, who have no idea of hope, who are in desperate need of a saviour. I wonder what was happening in their hearts. If they were standing there with love or if they were standing there waving their placards with hearts full of judgment and hate. And I thought to myself, you know what, it seems to me without having privileged to assess people's motives, it seems to me, at least from the outside, that these people are modern-day Jonas. They come, they preach to a people, but their hearts are hard and full of judgment, and they have got no concern for the thousands and tens of thousands of teenagers who walk through those gates in desperate need of Jesus. Jonah chapter 4 this morning is a window into the heart of people, into our hearts, into the type of heart that's required to be an urban missionary to this city. But we're picking up the story in Jonah chapter 4. So I, I, I want to quickly catch you up on where we've been so far in the book of Jonah. The beginning of Jonah chapter 1, God places a prophetic call on Jonah's life and tells him to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. But instead of going to the city of Nineveh, Jonah jumps on a ship and heads in the opposite direction to, towards a place called Tarshish. 
And God pursues Jonah. He sends a giant storm against this ship. The sailors of the ship recognize that the ship is going to sink. They cast lots. They find out that Jonah is the one that is responsible for this storm. They throw him overboard. And God sends his grace and mercy towards Jonah in the shape of a giant fish that swallows him up. And in the belly of that fish, Jonah comes to his senses. He repents of his sin. The fish beaches itself, spits Jonah out. He walks off that beach, preaches an eight-word sermon. And in three days, 120,000 people get saved. Revival breaks out in what is the world's, at the time, largest and most important city. Jonah literally brings the city of Nineveh to its knees in repentance. Now, I don't know about you, but I would love to be used by God in that sense. Or what would you give to be used by God to be an agent of revival, to be at the center of God's purposes, to see a city radically transformed? Now, I would, I would give my life for that. Plenty of people in church history have given their lives for way less than that. You know, if Jonah was alive today, he would be headlining every major conference. I mean, Hillsong Conference coming up in a few weeks, it wouldn't be Rick Warren. It would be Jonah, son of Amity, speaking at Hillsong. I mean, he would have book deals left, right and center. He would be rung up by church and say, can you come and consult with us about church growth and how to reach a culture and cultural engagement and sharing the gospel with people? So as you flick the pages between Jonah chapter 3 and chapter 4, you would expect to see Jonah rejoicing in the fact that God has used him for his purposes, right? Jonah chapter 4 verse 1, this is what it says. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord. I'm reading an NIV. I'm going to shift to the ESV. Sorry, this is a sermon that I've preached on an old version of the Bible. So let's go. Um, ESV. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, No, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Are you serious? I don't know about you, but I am truly shocked by Jonah's attitude. It stinks. Finally, we get the reason for why he jumped on that ship and headed in the opposite direction from what God had called him to. He said, God, I knew that you were going to save people. Why did Jonah run? He didn't run because he was afraid of what the Ninevites might think of him. He didn't run because he was uncertain of what to say when he got there. He didn't run because he had no idea of what God had called him to. He didn't run because he was afraid. And Jonah ran because he knew that God was going to rescue people and show grace and mercy and compassion. He's serious. You know, when, when most of us fear failure in talking about the gospel... Jonah feared success. That's crazy. And Jonah blames God. He blames God for being compassionate. He says, God, I told you so. I knew it. I knew you couldn't be trusted with your grace. Essentially what he's saying is, God, I'm wiser than you, and you shouldn't have acted the way that you did. Now, just so you know, you cannot tell God, I told you so does not work like that. God does not make mistakes. It's exactly what Jonah does. 
I told you so, God. I knew you couldn't be trusted with your grace, with your compassion and mercy. But you know what's crazy is that Jonah gets the character of God here. He gets it. God is compassionate. He's gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, relenting from punishment and disaster. You know what? This is the only thing that Jonah gets right in the whole of chapter 4. Jonah has got perfect theology. He's got a horrible heart. Perfect theology, but a horrible heart. He knows God's character. He just doesn't want God to act in line with his character. You know, it's worth pausing there and asking, is is that your view of God? Do you view God like that? Is your view of God that he is a God of compassion and love and grace and mercy? Or is maybe your view of God a bit like the deputy principal at your high school who's just walked around with a big chain of keys on his belt looking for punishments to dish out? How do you view God? Because it's an important thing to understand. Our understanding of who God is will shape our character, the way we act, the way we live. Because you know what verse 2 means? Verse 2 means that it is God's disposition to forgive. That's what it means. He is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He relents from punishment and disaster. His disposition is to forgive people. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He does not delight in punishment. He longs to forgive and bless and pour out mercy and grace. And so it's worth pausing and asking, do you believe that that's the case with God? Do you believe right now that God wants to save thousands of people across this city who are in desperate need of hope and mercy and grace? Do do we believe that, church? Or do we think that God would never use us? God could never do something like that in our time. Jonah was a prophet after all. Or we read something like Acts chapter 2 where Peter stands up and preaches the gospel and 3,000 people get saved in one sermon. And we think, yeah, but Peter was an apostle. These guys were special. God doesn't do that anymore. You know, Jonah has perfect theology and a horrible heart. And I think sometimes we're at risk of making the mistake at the opposite end of the spectrum. See, we've got a good heart. We do want people to come to know Jesus. We do want to see our city radically transformed. Funnily enough, we've just got bad theology because we don't think God would do that. We don't think God could use me. We don't think that God would act like that in our time and in our day. But did you know that over the last 20 years, in the nation of China, there have been 80 million people come to faith in Christ over 20 years. Now, I did the maths on that. That works out to be 11,000 people a day for 20 years coming to faith in Jesus. 11,000 people a day in the last 20 years. This isn't ancient history. This is recent history. This is our time, our generation, God at work in radical ways. Do we believe that, church? That we worship a God who longs to bless, forgive, and call people to himself. Our theology, the way we think about God, shapes our actions. And sometimes I think to myself, you know, if, if I really believe this about God, sometimes I've got a funny way of showing it. If I truly believe that this is who God is, 
And I think something's got to change about the way that I talk about Jesus and live my life. But Jonah here is a recipient of God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. God has rescued him from drowning at the bottom of the ocean. And then he gets spat out on the beach and he walks up the beach and he preaches to this city with a hard heart and then he's angry at God when God shows them mercy. Happy to receive mercy and grace for himself but does not want God to show mercy and grace to anyone else. Jonah just wants to put a little boundary around the grace of God and says, Ah, God, not for them. People of Israel only, thank you very much. So in the end, Jonah thinks that he is more deserving of grace than anyone else, that his people are more deserving of grace than these people. And you know what that demonstrates for me is that Jonah does not understand the grace of God. He doesn't get it. Because grace is what? It's a free gift. It's an undeserved gift that God gives. It's not something that you earn. You cannot be deserving of grace. And friends, grace, the concept of grace is at the very heart of the Christian message. It's the heart of the gospel. And grace is this, that God has lavished his love upon us, not because we were deserving, not because we were great, but in spite of our brokenness, sinfulness and rejection of him, he loved us anyway. That's what grace is. And grace destroys any sense of superiority. There can be no superiority when it comes to the grace of God. The heart of the gospel is that I need Jesus. I need God's grace just as much as the next person. You need God's grace just as much as the person sitting next to you. The ground at the foot of the cross is flat. We all come to God on equal terms. Sinners in desperate need of grace. Now that can be hard, can't it, sometimes? To think, oh, I need God. I need his mercy just as much as the drug dealer, just as much as the Muslim, just as much as the atheist, just as much as the prostitute and the pedophile. That stings, doesn't it? When we realize what grace is, it destroys any sense of superiority. There cannot be superiority with grace. And it seems to me, Jonah hasn't got it. He hasn't got that God has shown grace to the people of Israel as he brought them out of Egypt through the Exodus. He hasn't got that God has shown grace to him in the, in the giant fish and rescue him from drowning. He hasn't got what grace is all about. And graceless people are miserable people. And Jonah is miserable. He is unhappy. In fact, verse 3, you'll see he's so unhappy, he wishes himself dead. Did you notice that? Life would have to be pretty bad for you to wish yourself dead. And there are people who do that. People who maybe are plagued with chronic pain. People who have lost a loved one. People are covered with a dark, dark, deep cloud of depression. Might cry out to God, God, take my life. It's not worth living anymore. And Jonah, he calls out to God, take my life because you used me to rescue people. Are you serious? He is ashamed and embarrassed that God has used him to rescue his enemies. And he says, God, I've, I've had it. Kill me now. That's not worth living. 
Now, if you think that Jonah has reached the climax of his petty, fickle, self-righteous sulking, you would be wrong because it gets worse. Have a look at verse 5. This is what Jonah says. Jonah went out and sat... Oh, sorry, wrong Bible, this one. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under its shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might, sh- it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad, exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Now, it's almost humorous, isn't it? It's almost humorous, but it's not because it's so serious. Jonah is very pleased about this vine that God has provided. This vine, by the way, that is the grace of God. You notice there God sent it to save him from his discomfort. Jonah didn't tend the vine. Jonah didn't make it grow. God provided it. It was God's grace to Jonah yet again. And then as God appoints the scorching east wind and the worm, Jonah is very displeased about the vine and he's very displeased about God's mercy and grace towards Nineveh. And a second time, Jonah says, take my life, kill me now. It's not worth living. Now, I don't know about you, but I cannot think of another character in the whole Bible who's more ungrateful, unlikable than, any, than, than Jonah. I can't think of anyone. I can't help but think that you would just not want to be friends with Jonah. He's just that type of guy. He's always negative, always looking for the, the wrong, the problem, nothing positive to share, horrible attitude. You don't want to be friends. You certainly don't want to be in his gospel community. He's just that type of guy. But having said that, I think the aim of chapter 4 is to expose Jonah's heart and then contrast it with the heart of God. I think that's the purpose of this chapter. A while ago, I decided I was going to get into photography. Kind of, I don't know if other guys do this, but I get into things. You know, you get into a new hobby and you buy all the gear and you do it for a couple of weeks and then you get bored of it and you find a new hobby. Just me? Does anyone else do that? Any wives out there going, mm-hmm? Well, we, um, we bought a camera. It wasn't just me. Tash and I bought a camera together for our family. We traveled to Africa and we took some great photos with it. And I decided I was going to get into photography. And so there were a couple of guys from my last church who were into photography. And I started getting up really early in the morning to go do these sunrise sessions with these guys. We would get up at like 3.30, get to the beach at quarter past four, set up tripods and sit there and wait for the sun to rise with lenses, like shutters open for 30 seconds to capture the light. And I was learning from these guys and I set up my camera and I pointed it straight to the horizon and I looked across and I looked at all their cameras and they're all pointing straight down. I was like, oh, I'm doing something wrong here. So I said to them, why are you pointing down? And they said, well, we're trying to create this thing called contrast. They said, if you tilt your camera down, what you will get in your frame is you'll, you'll capture these dark brown rocks that are at the foot of the tripod there. 
And that'll contrast with this wonderful sunset as, as it bursts over the horizon. And you'll see these beautiful blues of the ocean. And, and it'll contrast with the darkness of these rocks down here. I was like, yeah, great. So I tilt my camera down, missed the horizon because I don't have the right lens. Anyway, a bit of a disaster. But this idea of contrast, I came across this definition of contrast. A striking exhibition of unlikeness. A striking exhibition of unlikeness. Contrast. Now, you cannot get anything more contrasting than the heart of God and the heart of Jonah. And I think that's the purpose of Jonah chapter 4, to contrast those two hearts. Have a look at verse 10. This is God's heart. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it was grace. It sprang up overnight. It died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about this great city? You see, the vine there is an objective lesson of Jonah's concern for a plant and his lack of concern for a people. It's hard to believe, isn't it? That someone could be so concerned about a plant and so unconcerned about 120,000 people, image bearers. God has concern for this city. And Jonah's heart is completely unaligned with the heart of his God. You see what God says there? He says, Jonah, there are 120,000 souls here, people who are made in my image and likeness. And they don't know their right hand from their left. Their moral compass is off. It's, it's bent. Now, God doesn't turn a blind eye to the wickedness of this nation. To be, to be sure, Nineveh was a wicked nation. In the very first verse of the book of Jonah, Jonah Chapter 1, verse 1, God says their wickedness has literally confronted me. It's hit him like a wave. He's seen their wickedness. He doesn't discount it. But he says, these are people, Jonah, who are made in my image. People who I care for. People who I have a concern for. And people who I do not want to needlessly destroy. God places value on these people. And really, in the end, the Assyrians, the, the people of the city of Nineveh, are in just as much a need of the grace of God as Jonah is and as God's people Israel were. Remember what God said to the people of Israel? Did I choose you out of all the nations of the earth because you were better than the others? Nope. I picked you because I'm a God of grace, I'm a God of love, I'm a God of mercy. The people of Israel need the grace of God as much as the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians. God of grace. You know, after Jonah came another prophet, another prophet who was sent from God to preach to a city, a city that was under the judgment of God. And that prophet's name was Jesus. And he stood on a hill Actually, not all that far from the hill that Jonah stood on as he overlooked the city of Nineveh. 
Jesus sat on this hill and he overlooked the city of Jerusalem. And this is what it says in Luke 19, verse 44. And again, my translation is going to be different, so forgive me. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over the city of Jerusalem and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but is now hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When we preach judgment and we need to talk about the judgment of God, we do not preach judgment like the Westboro haters who stand there with placards in their signs saying, Christian rock is from the pit of hell. We preach like Jesus did with tears in our eyes and a lump in our throat. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem because of their distance from God. Because they had not recognized the time of God's coming. He wept. It broke his heart. He was a prophet whose heart was perfectly aligned with the heart of his father. Because God had concern for the city of Jerusalem. Let me ask you, when was the last time that you wept over our city? Over the city of Sydney? When was the last time that you wept over the brokenness of people in this city who do not know Jesus and are in desperate need of a saviour and of grace and mercy? You know, if you've ever been to our, our unit, you'll know that we've got this amazing view of the city of Sydney. You stand up, we're on top floor and you, you look all the way across through Broadway, Centre Point. It's amazing. And I often go out there at night Family's asleep and in bed, and I, I ask that God would give me his heart for this city. Because it's so easy for me not to have God's heart for this city. So easy for me to have my heart. Or it's even easy for me to be angry that people don't love God in this city and that all of these forces are against the church and we're a minority now, and instead of weeping over this city. Jesus wept over Jerusalem city that he was sent to preach to, the city that he walked in, and the city that he died in, the city that he died for. You know, his mission didn't just cost him three days in the belly of a fish. It cost him his life, three days in the grave. Whereas Jonah hated his enemies, Jesus came and he loved his enemies, laying his life down that those who would have faith and trust in him might be saved and rescued and redeemed. He perfectly reflects the heart of his God who loves those who are far from him. Jesus told a story, a very different story from the one that we've heard this morning, but one with almost the exact same point. It's the story of the prodigal son. There's a father who had two sons and his youngest son came to him and he said, Dad, I want my share of the inheritance. There's a slap in the face culturally. I mean, even today, that's a slap in the face. Essentially, he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so I'd get your stuff. This father recklessly, generously divides his inheritance between his two sons, gives the younger son his share. The younger son takes everything, heads off to a distant country, squanders his father's wealth on partying and prostitutes. 
the country he's living in is hit with famine. He doesn't realize that if you keep spending without having an income, eventually you run out, he runs out of money, hits rock bottom. Has to go and hire himself out as a hired hand to someone in that country and he ends up being a pig feeder, which for a Jewish young man is probably the worst job you could ever do because they considered pigs unclean. And he realizes that these pigs are better fed than him comes to his senses he thinks to himself you know what even the servants and slaves in my father's house are better off than me i'm going to head back to my father i'm going to head back and i'm going to request that he would hire me as a servant so i could pay off my debt and work off this thing that i've done and he heads back and as he's walking home the father is standing on the front porch looking for him and he sees him and he runs to him and he greets him he hugs him he kisses him he calls the servants he says quick Bring a ring, put it on his finger, put a robe on him, put sandals on his feet, kill the fattened calf, celebrate. This son of mine who was lost is found, who was dead is alive. And so they began to party. The older brother's in the field, hears the music, comes towards the house, calls one of the servants, says, what's happening? He says, your younger brother's home. He refuses to go in. The father goes out to him. And the younger brother, the older brother says to him, Father, you should not have done this. You should have been harsh with him. You should have disciplined him. You should have sent him away. At least make him a slave. How can you call him back into our house as a son? You know why Jesus told that story? Because the Pharisees and the tax collectors questioned why Jesus hung out with prostitutes and sinners. Jesus' point was this. God has concern for them. God has a heart for those people. God doesn't just have a heart for those who are morally right and okay. Because you can be just as lost in your religion and your self-righteousness as you are in your rebellion and rejection of God. God has a heart for those who are lost. He's got a heart for those people. Remember, it was Jesus who said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call those who recognize their need for me. Friends, if this morning you recognize your need for the grace of God, then I want to tell you that this is how God will respond to you if you come to him. If you come to God in your brokenness and your mess and your sin, he will not cast you away in condemnation. He will welcome you in love just like he did the younger son in that story. He's a God of mercy and grace and compassion, and love, and he wants to forgive your sin. Friends, don't delay in coming to God. He is good. He will give you a fresh start. That can happen today. And we would love to pray for you if that's the case. Jesus has a heart that is perfectly aligned with the heart of his Father. But Jonah, on the other hand, he cares more about plants than he does about people. He is more concerned about vegetation than about people facing a Christless eternity. And friends, the question for us this morning is, what are the withering vines in our life? What are the things in our life that we have more concern for than we do for the people of this city who desperately need Jesus? What what is it? Family? Career? Car? Team, reputation, what, what, what are the things that we cling to that are more important to us than sharing the love of Jesus to this city? You know, if I'm frankly honest with you, 
the thing that I care about more is myself. About my needs, my reputation, my concerns, my comfort. That's what, that's what I care about more than the people of this city who need Jesus. You know, we can be disgusted at Jonah's attitude and his heart until we realize, oh man, it's just a bit of Jonah that lives inside of me as well. It's a hard sermon to preach. It's a bit embarrassing actually because all it does is reveal our hypocrisy. I've got a story that I'm almost ashamed to share with you, but thankfully it happened a long time ago, so I feel like I can. I remember as a, a very young Christian in year 12, I started to do chemistry, and I don't know why I picked it, but I got stuck with it. And I couldn't get out of it. And I, I became Christian in year end of year 11, got saved, and wound up in chemistry next to this girl and was not really interested in you know, molar theory, but I was interested in talking to her about Jesus. And so we began to talk. She showed interest in the things of God. We began to discuss these things in chemistry. Double period on Friday afternoon was the perfect opportunity to speak about my newfound passion. But I realized something. I realized that I didn't want to invite her to church. And the reason I didn't want to invite her to church was because I I knew that if I invited her to church, it meant that I would have to sit next to her. And if she liked it, she would come back the next week and I'd have to sit next to her again. I'd have to introduce her to people and I wouldn't be able to hang out with all of my church friends. I'm going to spend eternity with. More concerned about my comforts, my friendships, than I was about this girl who needed Jesus. As far as I'm aware, she's not walking with Jesus today. What are the withering vines in your life? The things that you're more concerned about than the people of this city who desperately need to know about Jesus? What we need to do this morning is align our hearts with our fathers. Pray that Jesus would give us his heart, make us more like him who was broken for this world. I remember the story of a couple that I studied with at Bible college or a part of our church. And the very first time I preached this sermon was at their commissioning service as they headed back overseas. They'd been in India, in a crazy city called Varanasi, where they set up what was called a Jesus ashram. And hippies and spiritual seekers and travelers would travel around India and they would come to this ashram and they would do Christ-centered meditation and they would share the good news of Jesus with these people that were searching for truth. They'd been there for three years. They came back on their little extended vacation and this was their last Sunday with us before they went back again. I preached this message at their that they're sending off. And I remember afterwards chatting with people and Brendan and Leif came up to me and, and Leif said to me, brother, I just want to thank you for your message this morning. It really impacted me. And I realized in my heart that I'm Jonah. And I was like, you are not Jonah. She's like, no, I am because I don't want to go back to Varanasi. It's hot. It's humid. Almost every day of the year. It's unsafe. Healthcare and sanitation are ridiculous. They put dead people in the river and float them down as their burial process. There's monkeys in our garden. We're sick all the time. It's crazy and I need God's heart because I'm so much like Jonah. And I stood there, tears in my eyes going, if you're like Jonah, then what about me? But you know what I was encouraged about? 
was it here are people who recognized a need, recognized their own hearts, and then cried out, God, please change me. Give me your heart for the people of this city, for the travelers who come through this city, searching for hope and truth and meaning. I love their example. I, I want that to be me. Despite my comforts, my priorities and concerns, God, give me your heart. Change me. As I close, I want to ask you this question. Why does God persevere with Jonah? I mean, when Jonah got on that ship and headed to Tarshish, why didn't God just let him drown and bury him at the bottom of the ocean, raise up another prophet and send him? Why does God persevere with him? He could quite easily have just raised up someone else, quite easily have saved the city of Nineveh without anyone. Why does he persevere? Well, I think God does that to demonstrate that God can still use people who do the right things for the wrong reasons. God can still use people who do the right things for the wrong reasons. God can still draw straight lines with crooked sticks. I think that's why God perseveres with Jonah. Isn't it a comfort? That's a massive relief. I don't know about you, but it's a relief for me that despite the fact that my heart is so often not aligned with God, He can still use me. You know, the only thing that's more shocking than Jonah's attitude in this chapter is the grace of God. That God would continue to relentlessly pursue this prophet to show him and give him evidences of his grace and mercy. And in the end, I'm Jonah and you're Jonah and we desperately need the mercy and grace of God. And the good news of the gospel is that his grace covers He transforms by His Spirit, helps us walk in new life, in new victory, in new power, to do what we are unable to do by ourselves, to correct the alignment of our hearts. And you know the cool thing about this story is that scholars reckon Jonah wrote the book, or at least he dictated it to someone who wrote the book. That's a sign of humility, that he would paint his own life in such a picture that we would learn from his example, learn from the grace and mercy of God. Friends, it's a picture of the gospel. If God uses Jonah, whose heart was wrong, how much more could God use a church whose heart is perfectly aligned with their father? A church who is crying out to God, God, please change us, make us more like you. Give us your eyes to see this city. Imagine a church like that. Who's the project in the book of Jonah? Is it the city of Nineveh? Or is it Jonah the prophet? The answer is both. The prophet Jonah is just as much God's project as the city of Nineveh is. And me and you are just as much God's project as the city of Sydney is. God wants to shape us, change us, mold us. He wants us to understand the gospel every single day of our lives. Apply that to our hearts and send us out on mission for his glory. God will use us despite our sin and brokenness. He can use us and he will make his name famous in this city. And what a privilege it is to be used by him, broken and bent as we are for his glorious purposes. That's grace. 
And not a single person here is beyond the grace of God this morning. No one. We're going to celebrate God's grace in a second. We're going to do that in a reminder, in a symbolic reminder of what God has done for us. To my right and left are two stations. And on those stations are grape juice and bread. And the grape juice and bread represent two things. The bread represents the body of Jesus, which was torn apart and broken on the cross. The grape juice represents his blood, which was shed and spilt for our forgiveness. Grace. And so we invite you to come and celebrate grace this morning. Come and take the the bread, dip it in the grape juice, eat it in remembrance of what Jesus has done, proclaiming his death until he returns. And we're going to respond in worship now as the band comes up and leads us as we remind ourselves of the gospel. So let me pray, friends, and ask that God would align our hearts with his. Father God, we thank you that you are a God of grace, a God of mercy, infinite grace and mercy, beyond what we deserve. Lord God, we rejoice this morning that despite our brokenness and our sin, and our mess, that you pursued us, relentlessly pursued us with your love. Lord God, for those this morning who feel beyond your grace and mercy, please remind them of your goodness. Maybe for the first time, Father, those who need to respond to this good news. And Father, remind us that despite our brokenness and our mess, you still use us for your glorious purposes. Would you change our hearts, Lord? Would you give us your heart, give us your eyes to see this city, not through the lens of our comfort and our own desires, but through the lens of the gospel. Transform our hearts, make them more like our Savior Jesus. And we ask this in his strong and powerful name. Amen.